I don't know. Yeah, that would be Good you. Good morning. <laughs> <laughs> you always catch me off guard. I know. I'm doing something, arranging something. Good morning. See, and you, it's the professional thing. You don't wear the headsets. So. Yes, that's right. And people in the business, when the music's playing, that's that's a hold sign. Yeah, I can't hear the music, so I waited for your point, but I wasn't really paying attention. Anyway, yeah. so good morning. I'm Dr. Morning. Kimberly Landon, and this is your Daily Game Face, and I am here this morning on this lovely uh, April 30th? Yeah, no, sure. 29th. 29th, yeah. 29th. Wednesday, April 29th at 9.46 a.m. Does it matter anymore? <laughs> That's why I can't remember. I know That's it's Wednesday. Really I do know it's anymore. Wednesday. Yeah. Um, and uh, it's a beautiful day out here, finally, in... Uh, the lovely Merrimack Valley. Yeah, and gonna no be getting better today. towards the weekend, I guess. Yeah, and it's supposed to be great. Yeah. So not that everyone can go out and go to the beach or run around do anything, but yeah. it's still gonna be nice. So you can get your yard done or raking or yeah. leaves or planting or I something. Have yard like that. pick up on Saturday, so. Yeah. Friday is gonna be a big day. Yeah. Good. Yeah. Good. <laughs> <laughs> um, so I thought this morning we would uh, talk about the things that have come up, obviously, this week. And so there's a couple topics. We never know if we'll get to all of them. But I thought we'd talk a little bit about people with addiction being in this time, I mean, yeah. of being quarantined and what that means and what it's looking like and how it's playing out. Because I'm, I see it all the time anyway in my practice, but then just with the restrictions and people in their own spaces and what they're doing or not doing and and how it plays out. And I know you also do a few shows with other people that are, I think, three, in three recovery, ad, right? Three addiction recovery shows. Yeah. The what? Three addiction recovery shows. Three addiction recovery shows. Yeah. So, and they're, and they're people that have been in recovery or there are in recovery and doing the shows. Yeah, they all are now. It so. used to be two of the three, but now we had a host change on one of them and it's an addict too, a recovering addict. So Good. Yeah. Good. So, so this will be a little bit of a different slant because coming from the treating side, yeah, and not with just you know the addiction side, talking from the personal experience that this is coming from. My side is that I talk from I teach at the college um, in the KDAC program, which is a certificate for advanced graduate studies for addiction and counseling. Oh, really? Um, so I teach counselors how to be addiction counselors, and then and to get their licenses, and then. Um, I've been teaching there for 15 years. I'm one of the main professors for that. And so I teach neuropsychopharm, group and family, how to teach, um, how to uh, do interpersonal dynamics and theory in, in addiction, and then addictions itself and so on and so forth. Plus, I work with lots of people who are either still actively in addiction or trying to be in recovery or in recovery, somewhere in the phase. So I have lots of experience with that. Yeah. So See, I'm not a recovering addict, so these shows for me are always a challenge, but it's kind of interesting because I think... Uh, for people who have loved ones who are addicts or people who haven't been addicts, having getting into this mindset is the toughest part, mm -hmm. trying to understand it. I didn't. I wasn't aware, even doing all these shows, that there was a lot of individual psychology work going on in addiction recovery as opposed to recovery programs and, and houses and detox and things like that. They're, I thought it was basically specialized, but you're doing some recovery work individually? So, so the recovery work individually, I mean— I think people have all, you know, in, in, as a psychologist, I think people have always been doing it from my, from my actual vantage point. Yep. But there's many more individual psych, um, psych people, not necessarily psychologists, but um, master's level clinicians or people who are specializing in licensed, um, you know, the late, they call it a late act one, a late act two. Right. They're the licensed um, addictions counselor um, certifi certificate that holds you can, you can have that by itself or you can have that in addition to having a 
bachelor's degree, a master's degree, associate's degree. It just gives you the specialty so you can work individually with people with a little bit more expertise, but only in that area. So, What, what percentage of, your, um, of people that you're dealing with with addiction are also doing support groups, step programs, stuff like that? Um, probably, I would say, at least 80%. Yeah are doing that on some level. And and there's so many now that are not the typical just AA or NA or SA or, you know, the, the typical A's. There's There's been in probably the past 15, 20 years a, a big surge of different types of programs. Yeah. So there's Smart Recovery, which is a different type of program than AA, although it's support. It has a different vantage point of how you should do sobriety or whatever. Yeah. Then there's four or five different offshoots off of that and you know it's kind of like religion in a way it's yeah. it's you know it's got the center point and then everyone's sort of made their spaces where it fits for them right you know and then there's you know there's also the medical assisted treatment which is sort of like a group where you go into the hospital and they they right. do medical assisted treatment um with your recovery but you're using medications to help you stay in recovery you know and and that's a piece too suboxone which, and suboxone uh, methadone meth, yeah. um anything I sort of call it anything that's in the narcotic family that still makes you not sober, but it's legalized right. prescriptions for it. So yeah. that's a whole nother. Well, yeah. it might fit into the show because yeah. it's, you know, it's, it's, a, it's important for people to understand what that is. Um, so there's, there's different places for people to go that get support besides just individual. Um, most of the mainstream psychologists or master's level clinicians, when they do this work, um, don't necessarily in my experience from you know 25 years ago have expertise or training in the specifics of addiction but up through the time when I was coming up through it was really much more part of our curriculum to yeah. be full on in it because the opiate ep epidemic and everything coming up through the past two decades has been so booming and and the need yeah. for it so and everyone I don't know any but I don't know anyone that doesn't have somebody in their life touched by something right. or multiples but it seems like it seems like that's an important part support from uh, other addicts is an important part of this for yes. people because again I struggled with this I've been doing this for what three or four years now Mm -hmm. uh, with these shows and it's a struggle if you're not an addict to get into the mindset it's a, it's a struggle to understand how they work it's a struggle to understand what they're dealing with right and so sometimes i think for a, a lot of them they need someone else who's been through who's been down the path so or is further ahead in the path so the so the one great thing about groups and support groups that are that are just peer led for instance like AA mm -hmm. and NA those are peer led it's everybody's in there together that it's a, in recovery or trying to be in recovery or whatever those that's a universal shared experience so speaking to your point all the people in the room have a shared experience that is specific to them and relatable across the board because they've all walked the walk of the addiction process so they know what it's like so the universal shared experience creates a cohesiveness between them, which offers, even if no one's even speaking at a meeting right. and just listening, they feel, I'm not alone. I'm not the only one. Oh, my gosh, that's my story. Um, they yeah. get me where you don't have that in other ways, in other kinds of groups. If you know, you, you may go to a depression group and everyone has depression and still there's a group. It's a group and it's a universal shared experience. But there's sort of some offshoots of that right. experience that are not quite the same, at least in my experience as a clinician watching them, that it's not quite the same as when you're in an addictions group um, with peers. Right. You know, people have a very, they know, even if, you know, someone was using heroin versus someone was using alcohol, it doesn't matter what was being used. It's the experience that's shared versus someone with depression. Right 
lifelong versus someone who's you know been traumatized oh very very different experience yeah there are a lot of different paths with depression yes very different and you know different experiences of lifelong um history coming up through or it 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 makes a difference but within the addiction work and people in groups like support groups there's nothing probably better than people being in that kind of environment if they don't have any other support because a lot of people won't go to support groups because right. they're ashamed, they're embarrassed. They, you know, we, we were talking a little bit before we went on the air that there's, you know, that sense of entitlement, which really I said, when you said entitlement, I said, oh, that's really narcissism. It's the insecurity of, yeah. I don't want anyone to see through what's really there because I don't want anyone to know, even though I know, yeah. I don't want you to know that I, they've been I pu- know. They've been putting up a front for, for, right. for the length of their addiction at, right. at best and right. probably longer. Right. And and so and in that way, it's harder to get those types of people in the room to sit in a group or to sit in therapy individually. So going back to your original piece about you know people being in individual therapy and doing that, there's a lot of people who come in for something else, and then when you uncover it in the history taking and sort of the formulation of you know the integrative medical piece that I do a little bit with, and all of a sudden it sort of pops out, oh, yeah, and there's this other, <laughs> yeah. oh, yeah, and there's this other thing, you know, and in terms of sports, so this is where it relates, and this is how I got into it a little bit more than I think the normal psychologist and, and, and general practitioner is that athletes are notoriously being injured and being put on things, yep. and then you're off to the races, right. and they can't get off, or they have been off, and they get back on, they get back, and it's and it's costing them money, time, uh, family, marriages, children. Right. It, there's pieces that are huge to it that when they walk in the door, you know, I often get a coach sends me someone, a uh, pro athlete. Um, I'm, I'm, I'm giggling in my head because I have this one pro, semi-pro athlete recently who was sent to me. And we went for at least two or three weeks where I knew there was something going on probably related to some kind of drug use or something and he wasn't uncovering it but I could feel it was there yeah you know and because it was this injury after injury and he just couldn't get his head right and uh, by doing this for a long time I could sort of see through that and there it was and all of a sudden he was like I said so have you you know did you take blah 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 I just sort of slipped in this little question and he's like and he just bought right in and, and said yeah and I'm like that's the that's the problem, and that was really the yeah. problem is that he's been taking a series of things that were approved by the team and the coach and all these things, but it was messing with his head. He couldn't get himself right. He didn't feel himself anymore. He didn't know how to get in. So he was he was compensating with drinking more caffeine or yeah. sleeping extra or sleeping less or eating more sugar or starving. He was doing all these things when it really came down to the fact that he wasn't taking account that. This medication that he was taking yeah. was the issue. Yeah, athletic pressures aside, this has been a this is kind of an entitlement thing too in general because I think the genesis of this is the medical industry. You expect from the medical industry zero pain. You go through a mm-hmm. procedure and you expect zero pain, so they have to go to the opiate level right. to do that a lot. Right. I tell this story all the time. I went in. This is three or four years ago. I went in for some cosmetic surgery, yep. and it was basically ten stitches in the face and the forehead. Yeah. And they gave me a seven-day run of Vicodin mm-hmm. for running. I go, what are you kidding me? Seven days for yeah. for that. For that. I guess this is an ibuprofen thing. Right. You know, if that. Right. You know, and by the way, it's numb because they cut a nerve, so <laughs> probably don't right. need that much. But I was I was shocked 
yeah. seven day Vicodin run for what ten stitches in the face, fourteen stitches in the face. Well, so it's interesting that you say that. I mean, for a lot of reasons. So I had my appendix out. I don't know back. I don't know, seven years ago or so, I was, I finished a half marathon up here at Bay State Half Marathon, and within the week of finishing the half marathon, I had, I had finished the half marathon, and I looked very pale, and yeah. people commented on, you know, you know, you look great, you don't look like you're sweating, yeah. I felt fine, but I felt a little off, and I had this weird color, it was very white, whatever, finally, long story short, got to Friday from the Sunday before, couldn't stand up at work, didn't feel good, yeah. right, the whole thing, so... You know, lo and behold, yeah, it's my appendix. And they, this is the, so two parts. The assumption was made in uh, the OR that by the anesthesiologist that the amount of pain I was in and how long I'd been in the pain and how long I lasted, that as they were putting me under, they kept asking, <laughs> they kept asking my husband, are you sure she's not taking anything? Yeah. Are you sure she's not on anything narcotic? Are you sure? Because yep. if we put her out and she's on something, she could die. And, and I, cause I signed off on no, no. Cause I don't, right. I've, I've never taken anything. Yep. I don't take anything. I have very high constitution for pain. So they were very scared about that. Then when I woke up, they wanted to give me more and, you know, more stuff to say, oh, you're going to be a lot of pain. And they sent me home with a 30 day supply of Percocet. Wow. Percocet. Yeah. 30 wow. day supply and I never touched one. Yeah. But I was, you know, cause they had, they said it's going to be really painful. It's going to be awful. You're going to feel terrible. And I'm thinking, I don't, yeah. you know, and, and it was just, it was an ibuprofen thing. Well, yeah. leave at the time. But so, it, but it's the setup. It's the mindset of, I think. Well, quote unquote, really painful to the medical industry right now. It, it, again, the expectation is you get to walk out of major surgery right. with no pain. And it's right. like, no, except a little pain. Right. You know? Well, and they and they they couldn't believe it. The doctor and I swear to God that the doctor was like, I can't believe how you've not this doesn't it hasn't even touched you for like having yeah. the pain. Probably and I'm going to go to gymnastics was, training. I'm going to yeah. go to my career in gymnastics of, you know how much pain I was in all the time, <laughs> yeah. of just training or being tired. Like you just, yep. you know, it was you sucked it up, Sally. You know, you did. It was like, oh, well, it's there, but it's not. So my mindset was always trained. You know, talk about neural pathways that. Pain's here and we diverge away because right. we keep going. Yeah. We function despite the dysfunction. But not everybody has that, so I get that. But there's the setup right there in like, a, you know, there you are. You've never done anything before. And you get a 30-day supply of Percocet. Oh, my God, right? Yeah. And someone takes one, two, and they like the feeling. And, I, and that's a Russian roulette because yeah. people come towards this with certain predilections, right? Right, right. I might have I taken a seven-day run of Vicodin and just walked away from right. it. Right. Who knows? Or, Which people do. Or I might have been hooked on the first one. Who knows? Because right. you don't know what your predilection is for addiction in general. Right. And so we, what we do know in addiction work is that if you have a genetic load, and by load I mean that you know you have a genetic family member that's close to you, mom, dad, yep. usually, or, I mean, that's usually a good predictor. I can tell usually if I know if mom or dad is, then I know. Or if a grandparent, yep. you know, but if it's in the line, it's you're, it's genetically loaded for you. You know, it doesn't mean it's going to, it, you're going to act on it. It doesn't mean you're going to be more likely to than the next person. Um, it actually means you're going to be more likely to than the next person, yes, but it doesn't necessarily mean it's going to happen. Right. But So the piece that usually interferes with that and confounds it is you have a genetic load and then an environmental modeling of someone doing that, someone teaching you how to do it, watching it, and so on yeah. and so forth. There's that piece. And right. then there's the, the deficited, neglected environment of, you know, addiction is really um, lack of connection. 
people go to addiction, and I think I've said this before in previous shows, it, people go into addiction looking for a connection to something because they're lacking human connection. Right. So they, dual, they're replacing one for the right? other. Yeah. Right. So they, they there's an, a mood-related disorder because they're unhappy, sad, lonely, um, depressed, anxious, all the things that come with being disconnected mm-hmm. and um, you know, an addiction is the opposite of connection. It's it's the disconnect and looking for the connection, and that's where you find it. Yeah. And as soon as you find it, and it's like, oh, this is my friend, and you're wed to it, now you can't get out, especially if you're genetically loaded for yep. it. And you've got young athletes who are their connection, their self-identity is them as an athlete. Right. They're strong athletes, and right. if they can't play for six weeks because, right. because of a, you know, a chronic pain or, or right. something like that, often there are injuries that aren't necessarily going to be get structurally worse. It's how much pain tolerance you can deal with. Right. And and so, and, and then you have that particular piece of it. And then you have an authority figure like a coach or multiple authority figures, the athletic trainer, the coach, the, the ortho guy or yeah. woman, a team leader, team someone, leader. Yeah, you have the other doctors. Yeah. They're all in authority saying, take the medication, do that. Instead of it being like, okay, let's rehab it. Let's do all these right things. Yeah. Which is, you know, I, I'm much more the lean towards the holistic, natural, let's make sure we stay yeah. off everything you can because your body knows how to heal itself and do but it no the one right in way. But no one in a circle is telling these kids take four weeks off. Right. Nobody's telling them. No. They're taking, you, take, you take this, it'll manage the pain, you know, right. and you can get through that way. And the, and the kid is like, well, this is what I do. This is who I am. Right. They don't want to sit out for four weeks. Right. Well, and so I, I get a lot of athletic referrals when kids are in that position or, or – young adults that are, you know, especially if they're getting ready to turn pro or they're like higher level and there's that fear of, oh my God, my whole career is going to go down. I get a lot of referrals like that when they're in that little flux area of, okay, they can't work out or they can't play for the next five weeks and they're going out of their mind. I find a way to create a program where they're doing everything but the play physically, mentally, and still being engaged so that they're satisfied brain-wise and physically enough that they don't feel like they've lost so much time. Because old school would be sit at home, put your foot up, yeah. you know, don't move your arm, don't move your neck, brace it, that kind of thing. And, and athletics are if you're injured, you don't exist. Right. You know, with your teammates, which has become a bond, right. with your coaching staff, it's like that just hits on so many security levels. Right. And I think with the movement of, you know, and, and I wouldn't necessarily say that Bill Belichick is the one that created this, but certainly because of the Patriots do your job, yeah. you know, motto. I think that that gave us a huge, uh, uh, I should say, a vast um, basket of goods to be able to talk to athletes on a team that, you know, not just individuals, but just saying you have a job regardless of whether or not you're running the ball down the field right. or you're catching or you're kicking or you're, you know, guard, whatever it is, you're actually doing a job. Even if you're sitting on the sidelines for right. four weeks, you're still doing a job and you have one and here's what your role is. So I do – that's where – um, there's been some injuries in some football teams over the years here, and um, I, I identify the role of the player, how important it is, even though they're not playing, right. what their role is, how I redefine it, and give them a sense of purpose. Well, because you, without you, that sense of purpose, the that, that's where it leads to. Yep. I'm lonely. I'm disconnected. I have nothing. I'll keep taking the drugs. Yes. Your job is to get healthy and be ready when you are. Right. That's your job right now. Right. Yeah. Exactly. You know, give them a give them a purpose. Exactly. Yeah. And they don't. And that's I don't, we've probably talked about this a million times. Generating an alternative to the thing that they're stuck in, which is I only know one way. It's either I play or I don't. Yep. I act or I don't. I'm on the field or I'm not. 
I am this yeah. or I'm not, <laughs> right? And but the way you approach this, you could be out four weeks, you could be out seven weeks, it's up to you. Right. And you could be out four weeks and not be ready when you get back, or you could be out four weeks and be ready day one when you get back. Right, yeah. exactly. Yeah. And But, you know, it's the all or nothing thing that people yeah. go into. It's if I'm not this, then I'm not that. If I'm, you know, so it's, but that's that's kind of old school. Yeah. And if you get, you know, if you get a good PT, a good chiropractor, a good naturopath, a good doc that's doing, you know, osteo or ortho or doing whatever and you get a good sports psych person or whatever or some combination usually the natural path is there um rather than kind of the old school like let's do surgery let's traction you up let's you know not do anything then four weeks from now we'll do pt and then four weeks that's yeah. old old school now there's really a much tighter program around helping people stay away from addiction stay away from um you know, identity loss, right. um, loss of their ability to play the sport, and all those things. Because we know, in as as sports people, sports med people, sports psych people, we know how important that piece is. Yeah. But it doesn't just relate to sports med. This is for anybody. You know, you have a sixty-year-old person who falls and breaks their arm and can't do something, or they can't go to work, or they um, break their hand and they're a computer programmer. It's the same yep. concept. Sure. Exactly the same. And you know, and you don't have to be an athlete to have the supply. It's about just being able to know that there's other alternatives other than you don't have to take the seven-day supply of Vicodin, yeah. especially if you know that you have addiction in your family, especially if you know you have, you know, bad modeling, yeah. unhealthy modeling in your life. So it's a, that's super important for people to be yeah. aware. And that, you know, we talked about sense of purpose. If you If you have an injury and you're going in your mind about, oh, addiction route and, you know, what should I do? That that bottom piece of having awareness of what's in your history to make sure you know, do I want to take this gamble? Yeah. Do I really want to take the Russian roulette spin on, I know my dad is, my mom is, my aunt is, my uncle is, my, you know, my brother, sisters, you know, yep. you yeah. know, it's awareness or, you know. Or you go right up that chain. No, the other thing, especially with older people now, is there's this authority figure, doctor authority yes. figure, and they don't question, they don't question the healthcare, and that's right. a, that's the first lesson these days. And right. it doesn't mean challenge your doctor on everything. It means think Ask. it through. I don't need seven days of Vicodin, I, right? I, or I don't think I do. Two or three days from now, if if I'm not controlling it, you know, maybe. Right. We'll talk about it, but well, well it's interesting because I've I I mean I have people that will say to me, you know, the doctor wanted me to take it anyway. When I, you know, they say, I told them I didn't want it. And they said, oh, that's okay. We'll just give it to you anyway. I think that's <clears throat> super important when someone's advocating for themselves. That as a doctor, I always tell any of my patients, if you don't agree, that's fine. If you don't want to do something, that's fine. But let me know so that I yeah. can actually tweak it. Right. If you don't want to do this or that, or this makes you uncomfortable, I, I can't tell you something different or give you something else if you don't say, I don't really want to do that. Um, but people have that fear of, you know, this goes this goes back to the underlying childhood, people pleasing, yep. insecurity. I don't want to upset the doctor. I don't want them to be upset with me or mad at me. So I do spend a lot of time with my older clients talking about how to advocate for yourself. Right. Go back and ask questions. And I get a lot of like kickback of, oh, I don't want to upset them. I don't think generally speaking doctors operate that way. I mean, if, Which I, way? I don't think they operate to the point where if you go back to them and say, you know, I think the Vicodin's a little bit too much. Yeah. They're not going to get upset. They're going to tell right. you, all right, well, you know. Right. 
by and large, by and large, I don't have the experience where most doctors will be upset, but there are some, and I do have some clients that have, um, I have a particular client that has his doctor loves to counter everything that myself and the other two doctors that he has say, right? Yeah. So there's like three of us that are in one plane of like whatever. And the main, his main primary care always disagrees with all three of us, even yeah. right? Because we, we have figured out over the past 15 years that that particular doctor is very, you know, he's old school. He's a little bit older himself yeah. and he's very challenged. He's got that. I said it, this is true. This is the only way it is. And sure. we can't diverge. So my client will come to the three of us and, and say, blah, 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 blah. We'll tell him. He's like, I'm not telling him that. <laughs> so <laughs> yeah. he's afraid. I'm like, oh, well, I'm you sure don't have to. Yeah. He goes, I'll just do what you guys say, but I'm not telling him. And, you know, he doesn't have to, but we always encourage him. You should just tell him. But he's afraid of the doctor yeah. being mad at him. Is and, that about pain management? Um, it's about pain management and, and sort of the route to take around um, some of his mood-related stuff that oh, goes see. with it. Yeah, see, well, those are different subjects. Doctors can get dug in in terms of uh, uh, which, uh, you know, which medication, which prescription they'll have for particular right. issues. Pain management, I'm sure they kind of, you know, they probably overprescribe yes. just to make sure the patient's comfortable. Plus, by the way, you get into rehab in those situations, you need you need to control pain to rehab effectively. Mm -hmm. So I'm sure some get dug in a little bit on that, too. Yeah, and it depends on the rehabs that you go to. So a lot of the rehabilitation centers for addiction, if they're dealing with addiction issue and a pain medica medication issue, you'll, fi you'll find some of the places don't prescribe and will not give pain medication per se. They will get the person sobered up, back on their feet, and then say, these are your options for pain management throughout without the narcotic way right. or without going in this way. And some people will jump on the board because they don't want to be on that, or some people will go the medical assisted route. Because when you're taking something like Suboxone and Methadone, unfortunately, that acts as a pain manager. Because right. it's the way it sits on the spine and the pain gate theory, if anyone out there wants to know, it's you know it, it directly impacts that neural pathway to be able to go to that space of wherever that mm -hmm. pain is. So I find that interesting because PT, people deal in physical therapy, most people aren't athletes, aren't especially right. when they get into the thirties and beyond, most people aren't, Oh, Oh yay, PT. Right. You know, they'll try to avoid as much as possible. And if it comes up to, I'm in pain, I don't want to do it today. That's something that the, the PT program has to fight constantly. Right. right. So I'm sure they want to manage pain as effectively as they can so that they just get people there doing the program. Yes. Cause and, it's so important. And I, and I think, and it would be interesting. I'll have to, I work with a, uh, a couple of PTs in in the area around athletes and around just your general population and and we talk about that about how people are resistant because they're in pain or so what one of the PTs I work with does is she gives a very baby step kind of you know like well if you can't do that it's kind of like watching yoga you know it's like yeah. if you can't do that you go back to child's pose right so so the person still feels like they're doing something so it's not just the all or nothing because I remember you know, doing PT, I broke my arm when I was eight on the balance beam and I had a compound fracture and I was in a pin forever and it was, you know, and yeah. it, it was forever. And I remember back then it was really specific of these, I had a sheet of exercises and that was it and there was nothing else and that was it. But now, you know, talking about that kind of injury, you know, this, this particular PT I work with, she's just like, oh, we would have backed you down. We would have had you do yeah. this together. We would have done the manipulation so that you wouldn't have to. And that's how she works. And I think that's more 
um, forgiving for people so that they can have those moments of, I don't really want to push it. I'm afraid, right. you know, I mean, when I would lock out my arm, when I was little, I still have very vivid memory. Like it felt like it was going to re-break. Um, and I know like when she, I've heard her when I'm in her PT office talking to other people, they'll give a symptom like that and she'll be like, okay, well, it's not going to break, but here's yeah. what we can do to fix it. Where you wouldn't normally hear that. It would be like, oh, that's, that's, <laughs> that's the key to injury recovery for athletes is that point where you have faith in the recovery of the injury. Right. That way you're not going to go out there and you're not going to pull that hamstring again. Right. Uh, Tommy John pitchers, things like that, that right. I can throw and I'm not going to blow my elbow up. Right. You know, that, that. The psychological threshold of I'm healed is often the most difficult part. Right. And and so when you're on something, you know, opiated and you're playing oh, and God, you tear yeah. something, you know, like yeah. if you're on something like Vicodin, Oxys, you know, oxycodone, and when you're in an injury space, that medication covers the pain. So you're re-injuring over and over and over because you don't feel it right it's you know it's it makes you feel invincible so by the time a person actually has to have surgery or has to have something done the addiction level is so high with the pain being suppressed but yet not being fixed there's nothing being done there's no ortho it's been you know keep throwing the ball keep running whatever it is that now the it's so compounded and so so complex for the person it, you know, it's kind of, it's kind of like looking at a person saying, oh, my gosh, I, I live in a hoarding house and looking at it from a whole thing going, how yeah. do I clean the whole thing? Cortisone. I always wince when people take cortisone injections. If you need the cortisone, if you need the injection, something's going on. Right. Deal with what's going on. Exactly. So, yeah. that's, so that's the stance I always come from, from the natural side of things. The holistic side is if you need a – I always think that cortisone um, injections are just, you know – they work for some people, not all. You'll have a variety of people talking about the effectiveness yeah. of them. You, people who have them will tell you that some people say, oh, they were great, and they're on their third. Yeah. You know, <laughs> so great, you're on your third, yeah. you know, and a lot of doctors won't get beyond a third, and that's it, and then they tap out, now it's time for surgery. And I hope to always get people by the time that they're in the first phase, before they get to that point, to say, there's other ways that you can do this, and here's a couple of my referral doctors that would actually be able to maybe rehab mm-hmm. that so you don't have to do the cortisone. But we are in the culture of quick fix and impulsivity yeah. and give me it now because temporarily with athletes, it makes it feel better. And with athletes, I've got to play. Right, you know, right. I know it hurts, but I've got to play. Right. And by the way, the mentality oftentimes in those situations, I'm going to play till it breaks. Ex- right? Yes. Yeah. And I am guilty, as you know, of doing that on my shin. Yep. But no pain medication. I just kept going. <laughs> but but you're, when that's you're, the less smart way. But yeah. I know, I know. But when you're when you're at a high level of of athleticism, and that's what you were trained for, you have a different kind of pain constitution. So yeah. you know that's well, one of those things. Isn't everything everything in life is? I'm going to get philosophical here. And okay. You can back me up or dispute me. Everything okay. in life is a trade off of pain. In other words, the pain of. I remember playing ball. Yeah, playing baseball and being out there when I shouldn't torn torn hamstrings. I mean, yep. black and blue from my ass down to my back of my knee. Yeah, and I'm out there playing because the pain of the injury versus the pain of not playing. That's yeah. the balance you're doing all the exactly. time. Exactly. The psychological pain of not playing. Exactly. Yeah. And in and in that case, like your case, other people do the same thing, and or the fear of never playing again, yeah. or the thought of oh my gosh, if I don't play, what is going to be my life? So it's that extra step further of what if I don't play today versus if I don't play at all, it comes in there too. It's and so... you know, and you know with team sports, 
It's a family. It's a yeah. bond. It's an obligation. You, right. You're a teammate. You can't let them down. You got to go right. out and play. Right. And and if I'm not part of this team, what am I? If I'm not this player, what am I? Right. You know. And individual sports are like that. You know, if you're a golfer, you like like Tiger Woods, or you're you know a swimmer like Michael Phelps. You're not mm -hmm. on a team necessarily, but you're also you're at the level where are you gonna are you gonna let down your team, your yeah, family, your, coaches, your fans, your, family, yeah. your individual, right? So yeah. it's you're not it's the team, but it's in a different way, and it still plays in the same kind of mental psychological kickback that, you know, it's not just who you're not just taking care of your own stuff. You're actually trying to say, okay, me and my team, my parents, my coaches, my this, my that. So it's very similar. So getting back to the subject of, of addiction here. Yes. When oh, did we get off? <laughs> yeah, well, well, sort of. Well, we're talking about the, the source of it, which is oftentimes is painkillers in athletics. I mean, that's what we deal with a lot. That's that was a big yeah. source of the the uh, suburban addiction issues that we're facing right. now. And it's not even just you. It's like if I had taken that seven day Vicodin run in the bottle and never taken it, and it's around in my medicine cabinet and right. uh, my teenage son or his teenage friends are over who knows what happens this is the beginning of a lot of these things too just right. the supply being out there certainly and and so and i see that a lot so you know there's a few communities around where my main office is and and you know i i hear from school systems i work with some of the school systems and hear the numbers and hear what kids are doing and that's sort of how i stay in the know of like teenager stuff going on and that's one of i'd say three or so ways of kids getting it you know there's certainly the traditional drug dealer that comes around or the person that's you know whatever yeah. then there's the kids who are either growing marijuana themselves or they're getting it from their parents for their medical marijuana or their stash themselves yeah. which has been increased over time and then there's the piece of the old prescription sitting in the back of the cabinet grandma lived with us and there's you know 75 percocet or there's you know yeah. and that's how it starts and then and then they're off to the races. They're using it. They're selling it. They're doing other things with it. Right. And oh, it's quite—it's quite prolific out there. The big thing with addiction, and it's all the hard addictions that we're talking about, all the soft addictions going on, is recognizing that point where you're addicted, right? Or recognizing that the addiction addiction exists. How do people become self-aware of this? Well, so you know, if you're talking, I just had a very interesting question. Uh, uh, conversation yesterday with a teenager, a uh, 16 year old, about the fact that, you know, it's so common, even if you're 16 or 26 or 36, I hear the same thing over and over again of, it's, it's not really that bad. I have it under control. Yeah. You know, I bring it to the awareness and say, you know, I don't just say you're an addict. I'll say, sounds like, have you ever thought, you know, initially, yeah. if someone's sort of not in the phase of, you know, they're not coming to me and saying, I'm in addiction which most of my clients do do, but you have yeah. some that are coming in and obviously saying. Well, there are certain, if they're coming to you in the first place, there there's a few steps down the road. Exactly. Right. So yeah. so, you, so you're talking when you ask that question more about like pre-contemplative people, people that really aren't contemplating themselves as being in addiction or struggling with addiction. They're just there because something's going wrong. And by and, by and large, you see that people are using whatever it is you know, food, alcohol, drugs, exercise, whatever it is, but we're talking substances here, but yeah. um, they use it to just fill in the space and they don't realize that's what they're doing. Even when I bring it to their awareness, and this is when you can tell someone's pre-contemplative in terms of their motivation level of changing, is even when you bring it to the conscious awareness of this equals that, I get a lot of kickback a lot of times going, no, no. Yeah. Oh, wait a second. <laughs> no, that doesn't, that doesn't really match, no. 
and then you know usually will pull itself out within a few more sessions because they'll go home think about it i'll bring it up again i'll kind of couch it a different way i'll use a metaphor or something yeah. and all of a sudden we have a little movement like maybe there so there's a stage and it's so it's me activating contemplation when they're not even there yet mm -hmm. then when you have people that are in contemplation like I know I do this behavior. I know, you know, I, but I'm still functioning. Yeah. Now you've got a different little set of mindset dialogue that's going on in narrative because now you're not pre-contemplative. You're not out of the awareness. You're in awareness. However, you're not really willing or wanting to change yet. Right. Which is where I see most people when I first see them in the in the space. Balancing fear. Right. I'm, I'm less afraid of, quote unquote, being addicted or, right. or being tied to this than I am the results if I stop. Yes. Yeah. Well, because what if what if I do this and it doesn't work? I'd yeah. rather just keep doing it because that other thing is too too scary, you yeah. know. Like and and so that's a whole another piece of bringing awareness of like, well, what if? What if you did do that and it did yeah. go this way? Then what? And then what? And then what? And people don't do that on their own because usually they're so afraid to even go past that pre-contemplative contemplative awareness state, admit to themselves that there's a problem, you know, which is the first, you know, yeah. that's the first. AA step, NA is, you know, yeah. admitting. But we were talking yesterday on the show um, yeah. about uh, that point in support groups because my question was to them because they were talking about support groups moving online okay. with Zoom and things like that. Yeah. And I was talking about uh, because I've never gone to a support group. I've never gone to a step meeting. I've, I've never been an addict. What is this like for people who haven't gone? So we started talking about the basic principles of it. And it arrived at a point for me where it's like you tie a lot of rationalization to what you're doing. And at one point, uh, a guy was talking about his sponsor who had lost his 14-year-old daughter mm. and didn't relapse. And he said, that's when I got tied to this guy. That's right. when I started. That's why I fell in love with this guy, basically. Right. It's the first time I've told another man I loved him. And it's about breaking down that rationalization. It's about uh, I'm doing this because of this. Right. And once you get to the point, you see someone else not doing it because of that. Right. You no longer have that rationale to hide behind. Right, because so, so that's you, a big point in this, understanding that all your rationalizations are just that, rationalization. Right. Well, you're justifying it to yourself, yeah. rationalizing it, minimizing the effect. So, but when you see someone that you know that has something happen and it will inspire you and show you that it can be done, that something bad can happen or something really stressful or traumatic right. or whatever you want to call it for that person can happen and they can still stand and not go off the rails – that's yeah. super inspiring for people. I'm using because of my life. Right. But you see people with more difficult life circumstances or the same life circumstances. Right. And not only are they not, use, not using, they stopped using. They were right. using and they stopped. Right. That's, again, that's breaking down all these rationalizations. And you kind of have to self-examine if you're at that point. But, of course, a lot of people just keep going on, well, well my so, life makes me use. So I could say, and, and I might go back and rethink this after I say this, but at least right now I can think of it like how you're putting it. It's like there's two camps. It's that camp that you're talking about of people that do that and then there's that other camp of people that just kind of go you know so it's externalizers versus internal mm -hmm. internalizers they'll look at someone and go yeah not me i can't do that and that's you know my life is harder my life is pity party you right. know for lack of better term i use because of my life uh, yeah because you know my mother yeah. my father my sister my brother no one's got it as bad as me even though i'm in the group you just don't understand yep. and there's people that stay in that camp the externalizers take no responsibility, no accountability, can't see that they have anything they can do about it to control their lives because it's so easy to just put it out there. And that's usually learned through modeling of some sort 
in their growing up years of, you know, their parents, coaches, friends, yeah. whatever. And then you've got the internalizers who, like that man, was able, either he was like that already or he was able to integrate what he'd already learned from being sober, yeah. being in an AA group or being in an NA group and being able to say, how do I integrate what I know? And I've found a reason and a purpose to be sober for so that when this happened with my daughter or whatever, yeah. I don't have to go down that road because I have fulfillment somewhere else. Because they internalize the integration of they have control over themselves. They know how to do that despite all the other stuff and including getting modeled that, which is likely happening and happened in their childhood. But for this guy, he cut the most essential chain, which was when people are saying... I use because of my life right. and they're rationalizing it. It's the underpinning of that is you don't understand. Right. They know this guy understood. He was addicted. He was right. using because of his life. He was in this thought process. Right. So it's really hard when somebody steps out of that thought process. It's hard to look at that and hang on to yours. Or, or for a lot of people, it's hard. Yes. And that's a turning point for a lot of people in addiction yes. recovery. And it's, and it's, well, it's a turning point if it can happen. Yeah. And that's why you see people, you know, in this field of work, we call it spin, you know, spin dry. People go into rehab or detox yeah. and come back out and go back in and go back because they haven't hit right. that point. And, you know, because they're mean, still I, facing their life. They're still facing the reasons they used in the first place. Right. Well, they haven't they Once haven't they faced detoxed. that change yeah. actually takes change, not just stopping what they're doing. It right. actually has to be something that replaces the behavior, but also replaces the thought process that drives the behavior. Right. That's a lot of work for people. Yeah. And so that's, I mean, that's one of the pieces that, you know. And by be... the way, that's harder. Changing those circumstances that dro drive you to using is a lot harder than detoxing. Yes. Like detoxing is hard. Right. But changing your life so that <laughs> uh, those initial reasons aren't there is, is it's, God, it's life work. It's, it's very hard to do. And convincing people of that. Yeah getting a person to buy into that i do a lot of a lot of extra mind work on showing people that exact process of do you uh, you know do you know how long it took you to get to this point this didn't just happen to you right. you didn't just become addicted you just didn't have this this was a process that took you 35 years or 22 years or 60 years and right. you're still doing it. versus you know how you know it might take only a year to really get yourself back up on your feet, which is just a little extra effort. But that becomes so overwhelming because it's that personal responsibility that someone has to take that's really counter a lot of times to how people have been raised in their lives about actually being able to be accountable, yeah. show up, be there, be self-aware. You know, and, and how many people do we know that don't do that? And that's a hard skill for people. You know, people think, you know, they just it's easier. It's easier to just keep going. Yeah. I mean, you know. <laughs> you know, in the long run, it's easy and, and, to just keep. Going. And that's what people do is they they do that. You know, oh my gosh, you know, or you know, I don't want to have to start over, or I don't want to have to do it. It's just easier to do this. And so explaining that you took all this time, you know, you you, you didn't start doing um, blah 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 drug until you were fifteen. However, you were set up by these factors, and now you're thirty five, and here you are in the rehab, and now you're in therapy with me, and what are you going to do different? Yeah. And it's often met with, you know, when those people that are in between that contemplative, pre-contemplative phase is, I don't know. Yeah. Plus they stop facing this. Uh, you can, you can, con everyone hates this when you say this, and I don't mean it in, in the literal sense that we're talking about. You can control your drug use. In other words, detox is a, detox is a choice. Right. Detox, you decide 
you're going to detox. So you have control over something. You make a decision. You go through it. Changing your life so that those pressures aren't still there. You're dealing with a lot of things that are outside of your control. That's a lot more acceptance. That's a lot more vague. Right. That's not taking a wrench and fixing something. Right. It's a little bit more complex than that. And well, people, that's the difference between yeah. coming from internal and external, yeah. right? Detox is like the external, even though it's changing the internal in right. like a seven-day period. But to do the internalized work is the remainder of your recovery process. It's yeah. So that's why you see a lot of people detox in, detox out, detox in, detox out, detox in, because they're doing what you just said. It's, well, they confuse detoxing with recovery. And right, it's two and different it's like, things. oh, I got sober, so yeah. now I'm okay. But if you get sober and you're going back into the same environment, doing nothing different than you did, not changing your mindset, not understanding why you're addicted in the first place, then you're going to be right back seeing me five right. weeks from now or, yeah. you know, whatever. But people don't want to hear that. That's hard to hear. And so, you know, you get, you know, I mean, the statistics are sort of like one in every hundred will actually stay in recovery. You know, and there's more statistics that I yeah. could bear out on that of like at six months, how many out of the hundred and, and one year later and two years later. But by and large, if you have a hundred people sitting in a room of detox, one person yeah. out of that hundred is going to stay in that space because they're going to internalize and integrate and really get on board with, I have control over a lot of this. Right. And this is why the STEP programs are so popular because yeah. it kind of puts names, it, put it puts tools in the box. If you right. have to take on your life in this vagueness and lack of control because a lot of what's affecting you is out of your control. Right. It's people you're with, it's your circumstances, right. your financial mm -hmm. circumstances, your job circumstances, your relationship circumstances. Yes. A lot of that is essentially out of your control. Right. So it's very vague and tough to get a handle on, and 12-step programs kind of put handles on it. Right. And, I mean, I think, and when I teach the classes that I teach, I, I make sure everybody, because it's a combination of people that have, you know, have been in addiction or in recovery, they're getting certified, and then there's people changing careers and doing the same. I make sure everybody goes and gets a big book. So if people that are listening right now don't know what the big book is, it's a 12-step yep. blue book. I call it the blue book um, out there that has the 12 steps in it. And, you know, people, you know, The Secret came out and all yep. the other books. It's it's like a great guide, even though it's a little outdated from here and there from some of the, you know, people will say, oh, it's got gender and sexism. and the, yeah. yeah. But by and large, it's a great guide just well, to read. I think everybody should yeah. read it because it's just across the board, a great interpersonal teacher, dynamic understander, being able to say, oh, yeah, that happens. You don't have to be using heroin or cocaine or marijuana or drinking to read this book and go, oh, I know how to apply this because just the first, you know, step alone is giving, you know, you could translate it into life as being like, you know, letting go that you have control over X, Y, and Z, whatever right. that is, is because you don't. And b people don't, you know, this kind of goes to lots of our shows that I talk about the lack of control, the feeling of, you know, the disillusionment with oneself of, oh, I, I have the illusion of control if I keep thinking that or doing this behavior over and over, but you really don't. Yeah. Uh, these, the 12 steps has the trapping of religion based around it. And if you interpret it that way. Well, yes. Right. But you can, you can ignore that and, or you can reinterpret it the other way right. I, I mean you and i i think we've talked on the show about the secret which is one of the right. things that hit really home for me yes. and it wasn't that i bought the metaphysical aspects right. of it i don't think we're out there leveraging the universe i, I think it's a, i think it was a good study in psychological yes in human psychology right and it's like if you start thinking about something you start to take these steps towards it yes and it, it works out whatever you whatever you're predominantly thinking about that's the 
path you walk. That's right. where you go. It's not that you're leveraging the universe. It's that you're leveraging yourself and your focus. It's about exactly. attenuating and, focus. And and I think this is where, you know, I over the 24 years of doing this, I've heard a lot of people say, I don't like the A programs, you know, yeah. because it has this religious base. Yeah. And I often will so come back and say, yeah. you don't have to look at it from a religious base. I mean, there's some groups out there. I mean, if so I don't know if you know this, Lou, but there's, you know, there's sort of a variety of groups. You know, AA is across the board yep. the same kind of way of being, but there's really kind of Bible thumping, yes. very stout, you know, staunch, yes, follow everything, and it's religious, and this is what you do, and you have to give it up, and don't speak, and... and and then yeah. there's kind of the more, you know, we talked about the offshoots at the beginning. There's the more mainstream. You follow the guidelines. And then the way I explain it to clients when they say, I don't want to do something that's religious, I say, that's fine. You don't have to. But you still in life, even if we weren't talking about a, an A program or a support group, I'd still ask you to find something that you believe in. Find something that you have that's bigger than you, that's that you feel like you can look forward to in life that's much, you know, you know some people find it in energy of doing, you know, yoga. Some people find it in just yeah. energy of the earth or just in the day-to-day -day gratitude. And usually if I can get a client, a good sense of a client, I can find the way that they would be able to interpret religion and use it more right. in their favor so they could get the benefit of it because people do get turned off by the God aspect and putting your hands yeah. in God as if there's this ethereal thing that's going to come by osmosis and somehow help you be okay and not drink or drug or whatever. So I frame it in a different way to give them perspective that it's about just believing in something bigger than yourself, just outside, you know, the universe. And I've had many <laughs> metaphysical kind of yeah. conversations with people about, you know, think how big and expansive the universe is and what's beyond you and that you can't possibly be alone so that there's something out there greater than yourself and that you can't possibly be doing this alone. Sometimes, more often than not, that explanation gets people to push the religious piece aside. Yeah. And it's and it and that works because that's really what it is. And and I know that when they first created, you know, the big book and the twelve steps and, you know, yep. they were much more I mean, it was the time, it was the yeah, era. Exactly. It was it was that's what it was for. That was the framework it, of the time. Exactly. It's yep. kinda of like when you look at the Bible, what's right. the framework, right? It's, yeah. So it's now being able to take the principles that are really good behind it and then move it forward. So I often do that. And then also if you have, you know, if you have an addiction issue and you don't want to do any of the big book and twelve step and all that i push people towards other kind of self-help reading that yeah. will help them like the power of now or the or you know like yeah. eckhart tolle or sure. it's the secret or things like that just to give them um that but, that whole process is just to switch the narrative in your head that you you don't have to be stuck in that one spot of not generating anything else yeah. that this isn't the worst thing you're not alone and so on and so forth because people get so stuck in the bad it's 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 going to be bad it can't be anything but bad right and so I have to use the drug to get it, but not bad. And if I don't have the drug to use, then it's bad. The so supporting thing for me in all this philosophy is that, like, I'm doing a, I'm doing a show now with a psychiatrist who's big into the Gita. He's he's from India and he's in yeah. his late fifties, and we're doing a whole show on the Gita. Yeah. And as I'm get diving into this, and you talked about the secret and you know Ekatol, whatever your, uh, even religion. Once you get into it, and once you understand it, you understand it's all the same thing. Mm -hmm. It's different trappings. It's different lexicon. It's right. different vocabulary. Right. But the principles are the same. Right. And then you then you start to get faith in all this, and you understand faith is probably an inappropriate word to use here. You start to you understand why this is powerful. Right. Because it's just basic human nature. Right. It's the way we work. Right. And it's attacking the way it works. The God thing, I, one of my favorite quotes of all time, and I wish I knew who said it, 
was that when we're young, we fear God. When we get a little older, we search for God. When we get older still, we fe- we understand we are God. Right. And you know, you know, this is this is my relationship with supreme beings right now. Right. Is, you know, right. And and I think the that's bigger really thing common. is you. Is the bigger thing is your life. The bigger thing is your place in in your, you know, your life as it is. That's the bigger thing. Right. To work and for. and where you feel like you fit in there, and yeah. where that makes sense. And I and I think that was to the point what you were just saying about fi- whatever fits for you. They all are speaking to the yeah. same thing, but it's how they're speaking to it. And so that's what I try to do is try to find if someone, you know, if someone called in today and said, you know, blah, 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 I wouldn't say, oh, go read this. It would be if you're in my office and I get to know you and you say, I don't like that kind of thing. That doesn't work for me. And I find out why. I have a good idea of like, okay, where to shift you to so that you can find that space because everyone's right. looking for right. something greater to believe in. Everyone's looking for something to give them a sense of why why what is your why so so you know and in in the way i use the why is when i'm running um a marathon like if i'm running the boston marathon i always set my goal up to know in my head what is my why why am i running this right 26.2 miles is a long way and for people out there to like well how does that relate well it does because it's a couple hundred miles to get to that 26 there's a big why for me and mm-hmm. and my why is what drives me the why behind what you're doing the why behind you get sober right i had yeah. a client yesterday ask me why do i want to get sober okay he's asking yeah. me right <laughs> i don't know why do you want to get sober yeah. so you know and, and in seriousness it was well what is your why and it's you know and and he's like isn't there a standard answer and i'm like no it's individual to each person because some people's why is their kids and then some people's sure. why is never their kids you know some people's why is because they don't want to lose their job their family but it's going to be what your why is. And oftentimes when a person's actively full on in addiction, they don't know what their why really is until they hit their bottom and their bottom ends up being part of their why. Yeah. But you don't know how to know what the bottom is because when you think someone is, I mean, I have family members and clients and people out in the community that I know that have all had their fall to the ground on this. And you, you never can predict out. Right. what that bottom is. You know, I'd love to say to everyone, well, when you hit this, this yeah. is going to be when it's going to be okay. But you can't because everybody has their own constitution of what, how much they'll take, how, yeah. how much pain, you know, talk about pain medication, how much pain yeah. are they willing to go through emotionally and physically before their why kicks in? Well, it's the pain trade-off that, we, yeah. that we've been talking about. Right. And, you know, the other golf tip around this is when you fear of staying the same is bigger than your fear of change that's right. when the magic happens right and that's that's bottom when your fear of staying the same is right. bigger than your fear of change right 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 and 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 the and the fear the fear is the thing really that just keeps it just stuck yeah. right in that space in between and you know it's the difference sometimes between someone living to, to tomorrow or ODing today yeah you know it's that I'll just do it one last time. I can't tell you how many times over the past two decades of doing this of people being like, I'm going to get sober tomorrow, getting ready. They're going into rehab, the whole thing, and they overdose. Yep. You know? Or, you know, or they detox like the, and come back and overdose. Yeah, right. Yeah. Exactly. They go yeah. in there, or they've gone to rehab for nine months. Yep. They come out. They've had you know everything set up for them, and they're dead two days yep. later. Right? Because they probably didn't, I mean, I can't speak to each person specifically, but they probably didn't find their why or didn't feel like they had enough ground underneath them when they came out, which is what happens to people going back, you know, seven day detox, you send them back to the house where the, the stress of their whole problem is. 
and that's not blaming a parent that's just the environment and the geographical nature of and the surrounding environment that constitutes the problem if nothing has changed right. it sets you right back up yeah including the mindset right and you don't do you know so the the students i teach and it's very stark you're going from a rehab or recovery facility right right back into where you were Exactly. Yeah. And that's the, that's the yeah. hard thing about detox. And I was just, when I teach the class about, you know, doing group and family work, going from just detox, people think, oh, the person's going in, getting, you know, recovered. That's, there's the first yeah. problem is because five days, oftentimes only five days, sometimes less, and at greater levels when it's really, really bad, seven days, tops, 10, right. you know, if there's some other thing going on, there's not a lot of work going on around fixing trying to repair right. that root of really what needs to happen to keep the person from relapsing once they go back into that environment. That's when you have to go to like aftercare programs and more therapy. And that's why they've created rehab programs, which is where all that work is, where it's, you know, they build in the safeties for people to come out and be able to not yeah. be. You can, you can see where addicts and families have struggled with that confusion because when, in, when addicts tell this story, they talk about um, the social pressures that led them into using, right. using, and the relief they got from using, and then eventually, uh, very quickly, it turns into I'm using not to get sick. Right. So they think detox fixes that, and they forget what they think all along they were using not to get sick, and right. that's not why they started using. Right. That's not right. how they became addicted. Right. There are other circumstances. Right. So when they get detox, they think I'm not going to get sick anymore. I'm okay. Right. Well, no. Exactly. You know, now you're back to the original problem. And 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 to talk to people. And and that's such a great point because to talk to people when they are going back to that point and then they have to deal with what is. And when you have conversations, the level of denial, hmm. even though it's really not, you know, internally, you can see it. I I have a good read and, and you probably would too, right, if you could see it because it's kind of obvious that a person will say, I had a good childhood. I can't tell you how many times I hear yep. people say, I had a great childhood. Nothing happened. There's no reason why right. I have this. You know, I didn't have that. I just started smoking pot when I was 13, and I had my first drink at 15, and then I did this when I was 20, and I did college, and, you know, my parents were wonderful. You know, and, you know, in a year into therapy, that's not the story anymore. Yeah. Right. And then you realize, and it really takes that slow unrolling of the history of the story to get a person to understand nobody's nobody was trying to hurt you no one was being bad your parents aren't bad your grandparents aren't bad your genetics are not necessarily the best or yeah. it's about you have to have an understanding of the root of where you just didn't start smoking pot at 13 there's right. a reason why you started smoking pot. And, and you know, I had a case over the past week of I started smoking pot because my mother gave it to me when I was 13. Yeah. That right wow. there is a problem. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> That's a problem. That's Why a problem. is that a problem? Well, you know, obvious reasons. Mom gives a kid 13 years old pot. Problem. But what's going on that mom's mindset yep. is that it's okay to be doing that and doing it with your child right. and condoning that. That means there's a whole root of issues coming up in parenting, mindset, you know, intellectual ability around just being a human being as an adult who's fostering and getting a person who's now 30 to understand that that sets you up so you don't have to then be ashamed of the fact that you haven't had control over this for 15 or 20 years, that you don't also have to go back and say, Mom, you did this to me. It's more about saying, ah, this wasn't just, it just didn't happen to me. This is something that I got ground laid for that I don't have control over, but now what do I do with it? Right. 
And people always go, oh, you know, psychologists always blame the parents. It's not about that. We take a history and figure yeah. out so we can teach a client how to utilize that to move that away from where they came from so they know how to manage that in the background and periphery so they can actually function despite that dysfunction. But awareness of all this is the, is the key and denying right. awareness of it because your childhood, your upbringing, it's not about blaming the parents. It's about your upbringing is the is the the basement it's the sill it's the foundation yes. of everything that you're dealing with right, right now right it's what you've been taught right. as normal so if you're taught at 13 years old or 14 years old that parents give marijuana to you and do it with you why wouldn't you think that everybody else right. does that seriously yeah. and that's and you know you know and your kids go all the time well joe's mom lets us lets them do it yeah. <laughs> well but we're not joe's mom but these stories that you talked about they are prominent the ones i had a great childhood yeah. You know, and they go in and they always tell the story about because there's this in the addiction world or in my taste of the addiction world, there is this uh, problem with stigma. Right. And there's a certain idea of what a drug user is, what, right. what a drug addict is. Right. And they want to elevate it beyond it can happen to anybody. Right. And so the people who are doing that, who are saying it wasn't my upbringing, I just tried it and I got addicted. Yeah. And I get, you know, it's like. No, there's other stuff going on, and that's okay. Right. I don't understand why they cling to that so much. Well, I mean, there's a couple. I mean, the first because thing then that... it is the then it's transference of of the addiction to the drug. Right. In other words, I tried it and I lost control. Right. The drug took control. Yeah, and it's the drug's fault. Yeah. Or right, essentially, right. Instead of looking at it, because that's well, the I mean, physiology that's... is a big part of it. There's no yeah, doubt about it. Of course. Yeah. Well, that's the genetic piece that's there, and yeah. and sometimes that's where you can start with someone saying, okay, let's you know, someone says that to you, say, okay, let's go with that. So, the fact is, is that when you take that drug over time, it changes the way that your body reacts, and therefore you get addicted because your body still needs it. <clears throat> but when you take it away. And you get past that, then what? What is left there because it's still drawing you to use? That's when people will be able to usually go to the places of, you know, looking at, you know, the childhood or the yeah. great, you know, the thing that happened over time. Or it's I'm using not to get sick. Right. Yeah. Right. Exactly. Yeah. Using not to get sick. Or, I mean, I've, I, it's an interesting thing that I have some athletes that, you know, didn't have addiction issues until they were in their 20s. They had, a, you know, a football injury, back injury, and all of a sudden they got the Percocet right. or the whatever opiated thing that they got or whatever was given to them. And, you know, I, I'm laughing in my head because I have a couple guys who are always like, it didn't happen that way. It just didn't happen. That Nothing wrong with, with back in the day. But we go through the story and we figure out that, yeah, they are 22 years old and they broke their back doing blah, 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 and now they're addicted. But there's this whole precursor that set them up to make them vulnerable beforehand that now, because they've unleashed that little trigger, in order to keep that trigger shut off, they're going to have to deal with some of that. Right. Because it has it's, it's only the fact that, like, it just was the, it was the igniter to it. It just was laying dormant, sitting there, sitting there, and that broken back triggered all that stuff. Is it also sometimes a, 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 a case of transference? Because sure. then, as we talked about, if you're 22 years old and you're an athlete, you self-identify as yeah. an athlete. That's who you are. That's yeah. your identity. So if an injury starts to threaten that yeah. or an injury doesn't allow you to live out your identity through that, an addiction is probably a pretty good transference. Exactly. Yeah. Well, because it's it, and and the the culture has been set up in many ways to force a person to that because that's the quick fix yeah. so that the person can keep 
playing when we're talking professional or semi-professional that can stay within the range of not getting caught with drug testing all this stuff it's the you know it's this this athlete's making money. This athlete yeah. provides something like this. So there's all these pieces caught up has in it. Has obligations, has right? Yeah. And 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 you know symbolically, oftentimes that scenario right there, when you see an athlete and you're talking about, you know, when I was just saying, oh, it's over here. That dynamic of you're an athlete who's providing entertainment for people. You're you're relied on by other people. You're making money for a team. You're doing all these things. You can translate it almost always, not always, but almost always over to this is the same kid that was the living, the father was living vicariously through and the high school football team. He was a superstar. Yep. Dad was out there. He was the coach and all these things. And they were, it was making a name. It was reliving that. Yep. It has that same As an to athlete, it. he could be more than he was. Right. Yeah. Right. You, you could compensate for perceived other weaknesses right which again there's nothing i'm not going to say there's nothing wrong with this but there's nothing to be ashamed of right this. It, it happens that way but people do get so that's part of the culture i can remember that... self-identifying as a good athlete when, right. I, when i was in high school and just beyond yeah that's that's what i was that's right. what i was all about right yeah but there's those self-identified athletes who are really great that don't have the pressure and kind of go on but then there's many who yeah. have the i have to be this other thing in order for me to exist in the world because without that, I'm a sh- I get it. It gets shamed. You know, you yeah. have you know. I mean, I have dad coaches and mom coaches now with you know their teen athletes that are upper level or even recreational. I mean, I have seven year old parents, <laughs> parents of seven year olds being like, my daughter's going to be an Olympic gymnast. <laughs> okay. Yeah. Okay. All yep. parents think their children are going to be Olympic gymnasts, Olympic skaters, Olympic, right? I'll, I'll tell you, I was a USA hockey official for 20 years. <laughs> oh, boy. <laughs> They're all going to the, NF- uh, the, the NHL. Every game was the seventh cup, seventh game of the Stanley Cup I Finals. Know. Every game. I know. So whether they're six-year-olds. So you get And it. it got worse. It was worse as they were younger. I know. Because, because the I... illusion that they were going to be NHLers I know. was still alive when, oh, it's, when your kid is six years old. You get the little peewees out yeah. there, and the dads and moms like, ah, oh, kill them. Worst games possible. <laughs> oh, I could tell you stories. So you, so you get yeah. it. So that's that's yeah. the thing is there's that mindset. So when you know talking about addiction, you go to the six year old and the seven year old, yep. and you you then have a twenty two year old sitting in front of you. That history's in that kid usually. Yeah, yeah sitting there, the the six year old uh, hockey player is sitting with you. Who? Yeah, but that six year old hockey player who's a little bit advanced in his group. Yeah. Or whatever. And all of a sudden you start getting him to practice. All of a sudden you're, you're driving four hours to get him to a tournament. Yeah. You're just, that becomes his life. And right. that's the way he's relating with you as a parent. Right. You know, and the kid thinks all his value is stocked in being, right that, being that hockey player. Right. Right. Exactly. He doesn't care that I play guitar. He doesn't care that, you know, I like, right. uh, you know, right. I like good books or anything like that. Cares that, uh, you know, I'm winning faceoffs. And and that be, and that becomes multiple other pieces that we can certainly talk about in in other shows too coming that that's the that becomes that entanglement with the parent the the identifying the yeah. over identifying and the the egos joining together um, and becoming one I am I am not you you are not me but we are one <laughs> <laughs> let me tell you a good story on that front yeah for my height and I could tell you tons of bad uh, experiences it was at least twice a year I was escorted out of rinks by cops. And it's just like every every referee will tell you that. Yeah. But there was one time we were to game, and it was a particularly rough game, and I threw a kid out of the game. Yeah. And at the time in USA Hockey, there was a zero tolerance. Right. 
uh, rule. And what that meant was he could he could basically say anything he wanted to you to your discretion. You could let it go. But if he demonstrated to the crowd in general his displeasure, that was zero tolerance. He had right. to take it. And this kid, I called a penalty on him, and he slammed his stick on the ice. He's going to the box, and I hit him with the zero tolerance penalty. And so I'm in the room afterwards with this four of us, the two officials that just worked this game and the two officials working the next game, four guys, you know, grown guys. And there's a knock on the door and this woman's voice, can I come in? And it's like we all looked at each other. We're looking like, well, we can take her. There's a problem. We, <laughs> we can, can take, take her. her. <laughs> and she came in and goes, which one of you gave my son the zero tolerance penalty? I goes, I did. She goes, what did he say to you? Yeah. And I said, he didn't say anything. And I explained to her, you know, he slammed the stick. That's uh, outward expression. It's a violent He's expression outwards, yeah. And she goes, oh, good. I was wondering whether I should feed him dinner or not tonight. Yeah. She wasn't coming to come after me. She no. was coming to understand how what her son did her and, how she, and how, she should, uh, how she should deal with it. Right. And it's exactly. like it was the well, best that's, experience that's really, I had as an I mean, official. although that's kind of not good. But it's good for, you know, and the fact that, but it yeah. gives me, it gives you the understanding, too, is that, parents get so involved like that it's like well this is a piece of information that's going they are so invested and driven that you know yeah you're hoping she wasn't as a hockey player you can't take that zero tolerance penalty and punish him for that no you punish him for saying something at at seven or eight years old exactly exactly but in but this so to the point of where addiction can start it's 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 in the it's when those kinds of things with a parent and a kid and those kinds of outbursts or 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 parents upset nature of not yeah. having the child win or do the right thing right that's where it starts setting up when you're talking about an yeah, athlete was that in relation to him being the athlete or was that right. in relation to him being into a the kid? parent and their yeah. needs and all those things and and again if we're only talking about athletes and people are listening here and thinking oh this is only about athletes this translates across the board to just all addiction how it starts yeah it's just there is a catalyst coming up through of some kind of feeling shame guilt all addicts all addicts and we should talk about this feel shame and guilt in the next show or something yes. we should talk about this on the softer sides yes. which are addictions to eating yes. uh, you know mild alcohol addictions things yeah. like that because well, they're the, right, a lot eating, softer exercise, addictions exercise yeah. shopping yeah chocolate chocolate <laughs> What? <laughs> Addictions are all dealing with in this shutdown, especially eating. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. So, all right. So, wow. Ooh, we're over today. Yeah, we're over. Ooh. Well, everybody, you know, have a really good week. And given that you're all sitting inside and doing all the things you're doing, you know, just make sure you stay aware. Be an internalizer in this one, not an externalizer. And, you know, and don't eat too much, drink too much, drug yep. at all. <laughs> you know, um, but have a great week, Lou. All right, guys. See you next week. week.